You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Blake Smith, the host of Monster Talk. I'm hiding behind my couch right now, waiting to see if I can capture a photo of one of the most elusive cryptids of our time. It's the time of year when he's most likely to make an appearance. Of course, I mean, his existence is a big question. I mean, aside from the Gimli-Peterson film in 1967, which shows a, a, a red, furry creature crossing a mall parking lot, there's really very little evidence for his actual existence except casts of his mysterious boot prints. Um, I mean, some people say that film's fake. It's just a man in a suit. I don't know if it's true or not, but they say he comes every Christmas put out bait, got some cookies, got my camera, and I'm waiting for Big Boot. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Okay, while I wait here for Big Boot, I'm going to put on an interview for you guys to listen to. It's with a, a guy named Christopher Dell, who's put together this incredible book called Monsters, a bestiary of devils, demons, vampires, werewolves, and other magical creatures. It's got beautiful artwork from around the world, and it just has all kinds of obscure monsters and talks about their place in human culture. I hope you enjoy it. Monster Dog. The, the preamble? Well, I don't know. Just uh, I need to get you to send me something about what you're doing these days because I, I keep saying that you're a blogger, which is true, but you have a, a lot of new things going on. Uh, yeah. You know, you're a researcher and blogger. And President of a small country in, in uh, that Asia. That sort of thing. Right, 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 right. And, um, yeah, I'll do that um, for, for our Skeptic Society site. And I need to do – I need to remember to plug Ben's book – uh, when I do our closeout each time, because I mean, until you sell out of them, I mean, right? You know. Until then, yes. <laughs> so. I may do another sale too, Ben. I was talking with Joe, who whose brother is credulous when it comes to ghosts, and so I recommended your book, and he's going to because I'm in it. Well, yeah, of course, <laughs> no, no other reason. Of course, no. <laughs> as, as is Blake, I should add. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, I keep forgetting that, actually. That is totally true. <laughs> I was about to say that, but... Yeah. And Daniel, for that matter. Well, and Daniel. That's right. And um... But he's not here, so you don't need to suck up to him. Mm-hmm. Oh, good point. Good point. Because <laughs> if, you, if you don't suck up to Daniel, he will oh, he'll bust your balls so bad. He's <laughs> talking about assholes. This is a beautiful book. By the way, Ben, did you did you read it? He, well, <laughs> it's mostly pictures. Uh, <laughs> Just the kind he likes. It is. It is. I wish it was a pop up book, but pop up, yeah. <laughs> um, some of the pictures are very scary, and um, no, I, I love books like this. This is um, it's called Monsters, a Bestiary of Devils, Demons, Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Magical Creatures. Oh, you said that correctly. Which creatures? Yeah. 
This is by Christopher Dell. Benzie, what do you know about Christopher? Uh, I know he lives in Spain. Barcelona. I see that on the back here. Mm-hmm. No, no, hold on. I'm not done yet. Oh, okay. Uh, Wait, there's more. <laughs> I, I know he lives in, in Barcelona, Spain. Barcelona. He holds a degree in art history and uh from a institute in london and he is apparently into um uh monster iconography and mythology yeah this this is just very a cool. is a very beautiful book it's kind of like a coffee table you know chat book um small chapters with lots of big high highly detailed pictures very Perfect very cool oh it is beautiful i i swear this is the kind of book i would love to just have out on the table Unfortunately, on the cover, it says devils and demons, which means that every time my mom and dad come over, I have to hide it or I'll scare them. And uh, I don't want that to happen. So they're very uncomfortable. You know, they wouldn't let me play Dungeons and Dragons as a child because of the uh, satanic panic. Uh, But I bet you did anyway. I did not. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I, I was a very good kid about following their instructions until I, I got into college. So. Uh, I, I didn't. I did not. Do, I wouldn't play any role playing game that had magic in it until I got into college. Um, the devil's work, right? Right. So I would play science fiction role playing games like Gamma World, or you think you know, as long as there was a science you know basis for the explanation for the magical things, that was okay. Uh, yeah, that was um, totally true. She wouldn't let me watch Bewitched either. Was, so here's what you get, folks: if you raise your kid really conservatively. You get a weird skeptic dude who wants to do monster shows. There you go. So <laughs> I don't want to get off into a parenting tear, but my kids are going to be exposed to a lot more interesting things, I think. So so they'll become fundamentalist Christians. I expect that they'll both be pastors <laughs> in their own church. I mean, I have three kids, but uh, uh, the, the girls, I think, are going to, you know, surely, surely. Uh, <laughs> precious have, and precocious. Yes, they are. So. <laughs> Anyway, gorgeous book, gorgeous book. So I'm really glad you sent this to me, Ben, to, to check out. Yeah. But what I was, what I was going to say, uh, I thought it was kind Christmas. of funny. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this in the in the end of the book. Uh, it actually runs out of page numbers, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Um, so it looks like 175. After page 175, there's no more page numbers. I'm not sure why. Uh, read those ones then. Wait, nope. There's 180, 181, 182, So on page 184, which doesn't appear to have a page number on it. Mm-hmm. Is a is a picture. It's like an engraving or a woodcut showing a um, a dinosaur uh, attacking a French house. It looks very much something like a Godzilla or mm-hmm. the Lost World, uh, the um, the Spielberg version, not the uh, uh, early Conan Doyle. <laughs> anyway, dinosaur peeking in the window, and I looked it up because I never. That's probably one of the earliest pictures of a dinosaur in modern times I've seen depicted. And it's from uh, Camille Flammarion's book, Le Monde Avant la Creation de la Homme, I guess. I don't know how that's pronounced. Beautiful French. Uh, <laughs> but it's uh, nothing like French with an American accent. Yeah. Hey, y'all. Uh, bonjour. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it says a prehistoric monster in a modern town. That's the name of the engraving. Uh, from Camille Flammarion's book. And uh, I thought that was funny because this is like the, the, the only picture I, that really, really, I mean, Look completely new to me, like that I had never seen reproduced anywhere. Mm-hmm. Although I'm sure some of these may be. Um, yeah, I mean, you, but, you have like you know the uh, the sleep of reason produces monsters. You have some of Goya stuff, um, and some of the some of the classic um, uh, you know depictions of harpies, for example, and mermaids, uh, and you know uh, Saint George and the dragon and, and things like that. So I was going to say Camille Flammarion. He wrote the book that reproduced the um, Lord. Uh, Dufferin tale. Uh, ah. That's where the tie-in was. I thought that's a funny. It's so even back then, even in the 1880s to 1920s, it's a it's a small friggin' world uh, <laughs> of people who look into monsters um, and ghosts. So anyway, I, I this, should point out that that um, this book first came to my attention from a catalog uh, from a um, a publisher called Inner Traditions. And typically, to be honest with you, I'm not real impressed with inner tradition stuff. A lot of it is very new agey, woo woo, this and that. Um, so I was when I first saw the monsters, I thought it was going to be sort of a a more ephemeral, less uh, scientific, or, or less uh, less 
I don't know, mythology-based, uh, but I was pleased to see that it was actually far more interest, interesting, certainly to, to me, and, and, uh, and scientific in its approach and analysis. Hmm. And it, it does have, um, the chapters themselves have um, nice little summaries of, you know, things like werewolves, demons, dragons. It's kind of funny because it kind of parallels the way we've done Monster Talk. There's hybrid monsters, water monsters, ghosts and ghouls, folklore monsters how to fight fight monsters and then it talks about the creatures that are on the this is off the map and it's got one of those um famous pictures of the uh people with faces on their chests mm-hmm. and the kind, kind of sort of little sort of, they're not doodles exactly but sort of things that would uh you know, folklore people you know people would uh, say existed in foreign lands sort of middle ages era stuff yeah and it's just this book's got everything it's real pretty <laughs> It really so we can does. interview him, Chris, and, and end the show. Yeah, then we'll be done. We'll have. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because it, it's a uh, it's a really nice. Uh, if you'll pardon me for saying so, uh, a bookend interview to uh, the one we just did with the uh, asthma interview on, in his book on monsters. On monsters is 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 all is almost completely you know words. It's all words talking about the impact of monster and culture. And and this monsters book here is more of a picture book. It does have, uh, obviously, some pros in it, but um, it's... Um, pros it's, and cons. It, <laughs> it reminds pros me... means something different in Australian English. Does it really? Yes. What does it mean? Take a it's guess, an abbreviation. Mike. An abbreviation yeah. for what? Professional? What? Yeah. <laughs> Close. <laughs> what, is it prostitute? Yes. Is it really? <laughs> you don't use that here? No. Now you do. Well, I mean, no. Uh, my wife won't let me. <laughs> Good one. So. Well, I always assumed prostitute was a, a contraction of professional substitute. Is that not the case? It's uh, an interesting folkloric etymology. Yes, it is. Yes, mm. it is. So what is the derivation, Karen? Um, no, not off the top of my head. I'll do an analysis if you like, but no, not off the top of my head. Just curious. Uh, one of four million words. It's yeah. one of the English world's words. oldest professions. And it's one of the I, I, had, I, had, not, so. I had not heard that. <laughs> uh, it's composed of two Latin words, pro and statuary, which means to expose or to place up front. Are you looking this up on American Heritage or something? Uh, Wikipedia, which I just <laughs> fascinating site. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody's heard of it before, but if it's got several articles about various things, it's really cool. <laughs> I'm going to update it so it says it's professional substitute. Uh, <laughs> so. Now here's an interesting word, pimp. I had not heard of that one either, or madams. So, monsters, a beast monsters, of yes, devils, sorry. demons, vampires, werewolves, and other magical creatures. Well, why don't we see if we can get Christopher Dell on the line? Monster Talk. A quick note, we use Skype to record Monster Talk, which allows us to connect across the earth and talk for free to people all over the place. In today's episode, there's some clicking and wind sounds that we were not able to troubleshoot away during recording, nor engineer out during post. I apologize, but I think the audio here should be understandable, and so far the problem hasn't cropped up again. So, on with the show. So, we're going to talk today about your books, Monsters. Um, okay. And um, while Ben just sent this to me in the mail, and it's just a gorgeous book. Yeah, uh, well, thanks. Did it take a long time to put together? Yeah, I reckon a couple of years, uh, more or less. I mean, uh, it, 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 it's difficult. I mean, I mean, you've seen, obviously, the vast majority of its pictures. Um, I mean, I'm an art historian, and I'm interested in pictures. Um, so I suppose there are things which I've sort of been picking up over the years or sort of finding away at the back of my mind. But in terms of kind of proper sort of picture research and, and research, yeah, a couple of years. I'll start then. Uh, in your book, you cover a wide variety of monsters from around the world. So are monsters a universal concept? Um, absolutely universal concept. I think for me, the most interesting thing about monsters is especially from a visual point of view, is that they appear in every single culture throughout the whole of history. It's fascinating that the, the oldest surviving sculpture that we have is about 32,000 years old. Um, it's a lion man found in a cave in Germany. 
Um, and it's precisely that. The bottom half is human uh, with a lion's head. It's a monster and it's 32,000 years old. Every single culture since then, we go through say, Mesopotamian culture, we go through ancient Egypt, we're talking about 6,000 years ago, let's say, have the same things, the same blendings of, of animals and humans to create monsters. And then everything since then, in every single part of the world, we find the same thing. Again, like Blake, I was looking through your, your book and I was just uh, just delighted to see all the fascinating uh, images and pictures and stuff. How did you how did you get involved in this? How did you get fascinated by the, the, the sort of monster iconography? It's it's um it's curious. I, I think the monster that my kind of fascination with monsters really goes back to childhood, it must be. Uh, the same with everyone I'm sure. um, I was completely convinced for years and years and years that I had a Minotaur living in the cupboard in my bedroom. Uh, a little bit of background noise. Is Are you using headphones or... Um... I am using headphones. Okay. Um, you don't have a window open or anything, do you? you? Do you have to be jogging or on the wing of a plane? <laughs> <laughs> Does that sound any better? Yes. yes dramatic. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, good, 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 good. Now if you could just cool. get rid of the accent. But other than that, it's great. <laughs> oh, you too, then. I like the accent. I think it, it <laughs> makes our show sound more intellectual. It, it, it definitely adds a touch of class. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, let, let me just quickly follow up. Did, did you say that you used to believe that there was a minotaur living under your bed? Was that right? No. Where on earth did you get that from? I, well, it was, it was the bad audio, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that was you, Ben. Not, 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 in, not in my bed. In my, ward, in my um, wardrobe. Oh, well, that's completely different. <laughs> completely, no, completely different. Completely different. <laughs> no, I, had, I, had a, I was convinced there was a Minotaur living in my, in my wardrobe for years and years. And in fact, bizarrely, I had the same dream about a Minotaur every night for about three years. Um, and and I, I, that, that must have set, sort of sowed the seeds of, of fascination with monsters. So what caused that thought? Not a clue. <laughs> Medication or something? Very. Wait, wait. That is a funny monitor joke. Uh, because because of uh, the the way he was defeated with a clue of thread. Stretch. Was good, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> He's witty. It was planned. Fantastic. <laughs> Our audience will totally get that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now they will. You've explained it. Yeah. Well. Thank you. So. Um, how did you pick what kind of art you wanted to put in? I mean, goodness gracious, you covered just about every kind of art. Uh, I mean, I don't. You went from the Stone Age all the way through the Renaissance uh, to what the Baroque uh, to modern times. Just a, a fabulous assortment of you know monstrous depictions. How did you decide what was going to stay and what was going to go? Um, more than anything else, visual effect. Um, I mean, I say in the introduction to the book that monsters, first and foremost, are visual beings. It's interesting. Whenever we read about monsters, whenever they appear in stories, it's always their visual aspect which matters most. It's always how sharp the teeth are, or how many tails or heads or whatever they've got, how spiky they are, how furry they are. I suppose they're the kind of anecdotal things which are very easy to add to when you're telling a story. When you're retelling a story, you can exaggerate things, you can emphasize things. Um, they're fundamentally visual things, and therefore, to a large extent, um, it was on the basis of visually sensational things. What we have to remember, of course, is that every single image in this book is the work of man. It's the work of, of bizarre, fevered imaginations, but the work of man, and I really wanted that to come through. I wanted, I wanted the reader to see the human imagination, the power of the human imagination in all its twisted glory, I suppose. Hmm, well put. And so you were speaking about a uh, creature you used to believe in. Do you believe in any of the monsters that you depict in the book nowadays? No. <laughs> I'm. I'm. Um, I'm. No. I mean, I'm. Um, I'm about as atheistic as as one can be. Um, uh, I suppose is the best way of putting it. And I, in this sense, there's a subtext, and it's probably rather feeble subtext, but there's a subtext nonetheless to the book that um, nobody in the entire history of the world, nobody in any of these cultures, in any of these countries has ever seen a monster. Doesn't stop us believing in them, doesn't stop us creating them, but the fact is nobody has ever, ever seen one. And some people, I suppose, would draw parallels with God. 
um, and perhaps I would be one of them. But I do think it's absolutely fascinating the fact that even though there's no evidence for any of these things anywhere, we don't find any interesting monster skeletons anywhere, nor bits of monster fossil or anything, that we mm. carry on believing in them. We carry on. But Unfortunately, I think a lot of... Sorry. Uh, I think a lot of people do believe they have evidence and do believe they've experienced sightings. Well, only in the same way that people believe they've experienced, uh, well, they've experienced sightings of ghosts, let's say, mm-hmm. to take another example. The simple fact is if ghosts existed, the same as monsters, um, the world would be teeming with ghosts and monsters. Um, you yourself would have seen a ghost, uh, or if not many, many, many ghosts, um, and we would have all seen many, many monsters. Uh, in the same way that we've all seen a cat, we've all seen a cockroach, we've all seen a koala. <laughs> um, we would quite simply all have seen monsters. It's as, it's, it's as simple as that. Which sort of takes me on to, I mean, what's interesting about monsters, of course, is they exist and they have to exist beyond our everyday world. They have to exist in a supernatural realm or in a place where we're not. And of course, I mean, that takes us all the way back to, sorry, just to jump around a little bit, but takes us to, say, Pliny, for example, takes us back to the classical geographers, mm-hmm. who weren't really geographers in the conventional sense at all, but who were interested in faraway lands. And I suppose a little bit like, I, I, just as I want to do with my book, I want to sort of, um, I want to thrill the reader a little bit, kind of visually. Well, Pliny was doing the same thing. He wanted to thrill his reader with tales of bizarre creatures in faraway lands like Ethiopia and India, where you have people with uh, heads in their bodies, or you have dog-headed men, obviously the famous ones. Well, let, me, let me ask you about that. I mean, how do, what, what role does culture play in the perception of monsters? I mean, for example, how are, how are Asian monsters different from European ones and American ones? Um, it in many respects, they're not different at all. Um, one of the things I found most shocking about this book in relation to Asian monsters, I mean, first of all, let me say, Asian monsters are the best monsters anyway. Asian monsters are amazing. And the further east you go until you get to Japan, they get more and more interesting. And obviously, Japan is the, is the world capital of monsters, as far as I'm concerned. They have so many, and they're so very, very, very strange. Um, but... Asian monsters, uh, and we're talking often about fundamentally Buddhist traditions, um, absolutely teeming with demons, and Buddhism these days isn't associated with demons. We're happy with medieval demons, we're happy with the kind of the traditional Christian punishment going to hell sort of demons, but in many, many Buddhist traditions you'll find these demons too, and they're astonishing things. They're really, really quite evil-looking things. Um, did that answer your question? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's just one thing that I, I find fascinating is you know when when you examine monster traditions from around the world, you know how each culture sort of adapts uh, adapts you know sort of larger archetypes into their more localized variants. No, I mean sorry, sorry I, mean, I was going to say just sort of thinking back to yes, your original question. I mean, what and the classic example obviously is dragons. Um, dragons, uh, which are things fundamentally which come from, as far as we can tell, really come from Mesopotamia. Um, and they, they're, they're coming from the sort of Babylon region. They're coming uh, 6,000 years ago, more or less. Um, we find them sort of very soon after, um, produced these wonderful terracotta um, panels uh, that we find in that sort of part of modern-day Iran, Iraq, Iraq mostly. Um and then they spread. They spread to um, uh, Egypt. Uh, they then start appearing in the Bible. We get Leviathans and things like this. And then, of course, they turn into um, uh, sort of serpent-like strange things which then appear in Greek mythology. Um, dragons then go on after the Greeks and after the Greeks really established the tradition of the hero uh, killing the dragon. So dragon then becomes a, a symbol of chaos fundamentally and the hero is restoring order. Then we have the whole sort of heroic tradition going into Norse mythology, going into the sort of whole of European mythology. Because meanwhile, the dragon is heading east as well. And the dragon heads east, uh, and we find it in Persian, later Persian uh, miniatures, for example, amazing things, beautiful colored dragons. And of course, they go to China and Japan, where they become radically different things, because dragons fundamentally are, um, they're lucky creatures. 
they're often benign creatures. They're creatures that can help. They can cause an awful lot of problems as well. But fundamentally, they're a very positive thing. To be born in the year of the dragon, as was I, um, is uh, a good thing. Me too. Ah, good. There we are. <laughs> I think so- it's next year. I, I just was going to quick follow up on that. I, I, it's fascinating you're talking about that because I remember when, when I used to play Dungeons and Dragons, uh, one of the main things I remember from the Monster Manual was that there were, as I recall, at least a dozen different types of dragons. There wasn't just one dragon. There were like red dragons and silver dragons, and each of them had their own distinct uh, characteristics and abilities and powers and personalities. And it, it's interesting that that, uh, that what you're saying reflects that. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I mean, I'm, fundamentally, dragons are, I suppose, serpents. Um, they're serpents, and then we've sort of welded little bits onto them. There's an interesting story, which I very briefly recount in the in the book, and the, the Chinese tradition of the Yellow Emperor, whose uh, emblem was a serpent. Um, and as he went around conquering other tribes, he would then incorporate parts of their emblem, sort of tacking them on, wielding, uh, welding them on, to his serpent to eventually end up with the dragon, which is, is, is a rather fun story behind the dragon. But in a sense, there's, there's an element of truth there that snakes, of course, are universally fear. Um, snakes appear, um, I mean, apart from the, the Bible, obviously, um, going all the way back to, to uh, original sin and the serpent in the tree, um, that snakes are uh, invariably cause problems um, throughout um, throughout mythology, throughout various mythological traditions around the world, um, and therefore it's it's natural, I suppose, to to uh, the, the dragon is the development of the snake. Speaking of um, the Bible and religion, I know uh, the history of monsters in in what we have as recorded history goes back uh, a long way. We had. Um, sort of these hybrid creatures that the Egyptians worshipped as gods with animal heads, human bodies. And then you have things like um, uh, Enkidu in the story of Gilgamesh, uh, sort of a wild beast man. Um, there's that delineation between the folkloric monster and the religious monster. Um, how do you think these, uh, these differ? There's, they're all monstrous, but how, what did you, in, your, in your studies, your research here for your art, what did you find the big differences between religious monsters and non-religious monsters to be? It's interesting to answer that slightly obliquely. In fact, one of the things I found about religious monsters is that, and I suppose now and then I'm specifically talking about Christianity, is that religious monsters, and they tend to be devils and demons and things like that, the church only wants to be scary. But in fact, there's very little orthodoxy. There, is, there isn't really an orthodox representation, for example, of the devil, let's say. I mean, he's the kind of classic archetypal monster. Um... They don't really care what the devil looks like. The Bible certainly doesn't give a description of the devil. Um, and in fact, none of the Apocrypha really give a description of the devil either. So the devil then is thrown into the hands of the artists, and the artists do whatever they want with it. But the main object um, of the exercise is to terrify the faithful. Angels, on the other hand, interestingly, do have very um, uh, orthodox depictions that artists have to stick to a particular template. So that sort of partly answers your question, but I would say uh, I'm just trying to think um, sort of religious. Yeah, you know, I was going to say the, the the angels, the depictions we usually see though aren't the way they're described in the Bible for the most part. I mean, I, I guess the modern depiction of the angel as sort of humanoid figure, angelic looking, even that has become an adjective now. Uh, whether you know, perhaps the cherubs are right, but you know, 
Uh, a lot of the angels have multiple eyes, multiple wings. You know, just very scary creatures. And oh, the, oh, the, oh, the, the, the multiple wings is is in the Bible. Right, um, right. They're 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 very frightening. But you don't, you know, most people see angels now, and we see these sort of little cherubic or you know uh, humanoid. They're very very human looking, and and I don't. That doesn't seem particularly biblically sound. <laughs> well, I think I mean I mean um, it, it at least corresponds with uh, various apocryphal texts. The, 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 this this is the thing. I mean, I, th- I suppose my point there is that the church wants angels to look a particular way, but they don't care how devils look so long as they frighten people. Uh, well, one, I mean, one thing that is very very interesting about Christianity, obviously, is there are very very few. Monsters. I mean, in fact, all of the monotheistic, the great monotheistic religions, uh, the uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, none of them really have um, monsters in the way that we would understand it. I kind of very briefly cover, uh, I mean, you have the golem, obviously, um, in Judaism, but this is very much a later thing. I mean, related to earlier texts, but, but in the kind of monster form that we have of it is, is a much later thing. Islam, you have a whole history, um, a whole tradition of uh, jinns. You have a tradition of devils and demons, but fundamentally they, they don't feature uh, um, very heavily in the Quran at all. And of course, the Bible is actually very, very short on monsters. We have Leviathan, we have Behemoth, um, we have hints at other things, but very, very little that's concrete. And I don't know why. I, I, I suppose because. Apart from the devil, and of course the devil is a very abstract concept in in the Judeo-Christian tradition at least, um, they don't want to create other beings that might have some sort of power that would uh, rival the power of the creator. And again, monsters are supernatural creatures. They're not things that can exist um, in day-to-day life. That is their point. And so what would you say that the existence of monsters, if only as folklore, says about humankind? Um, it, it, it says more than anything else that we love telling stories um, and that we love embellishing these stories. Um, uh, right now, in fact, I'm sort of working on uh, something else which looks at mythology more broadly. And it is astonishing, the stories that you read and the way that then they're reinterpreted um, and the way that they evolve over the centuries on the millennia, monsters are exactly the same. We find the same monsters um, in lots of different cultures, lots of different times, um, but often with similar traits which then have evolved. I mean, vampires, for example, is a, a, a classic example of a monster which evolves over time, um, which, um, I mean, obviously goes back to the symbolism of blood, um, which is, is particularly loaded, but then to which we add... Um, layer upon layer of symbolism until we end up with a rather sort of complex uh, thing that we have today. As you know, as the three of us know, uh, and and you as well, all of us being monster aficionados, um, many of the monsters that we see are human hybrids. You know, you have the, the minotaur, mermaids, harpies. Uh, wh- what do you what do you think find What do you think it is that people find so fascinating about human yet not human uh, creatures? I think I think the most interesting thing about them by far is the fact that they are very close to us and yet they are distant um, from us. You look at something like the Minotaur, for example, and it's it's so frustrating because in Greek mythology, of course, we get the we get the point of view of Theseus, we get the point of view of of everyone around the actual the central figure, the Minotaur himself, but we don't have the Minotaur's point of view. We don't know whether he's thinking. We don't know whether he could talk. We don't know what he felt about everything that was going on around him. And in a sense, that's what's so unsettling about these these hybrids, these things which are close to us. For example, you've got a cow's head and you put it on a human's body, and you have to ask yourself, well, is it thinking? Does it have a human capacity for thought? Or is it still fundamentally a cow's brain in there, or a bull's brain this unnerves us. This unnerves us deeply because we don't know how to react to it. We don't know whether the, the, the eyes are bull's eyes or human's eyes anymore. It's that juxtaposition which throws everything. It turns our world upside down completely. So yes, it's, it's, it's the closeness and the distance at the same time which bothers us. In, in, in your research here, what, what were some of your favorite or, or most interesting monsters that you did got to include in the book? 
I mean, my my favorite monsters um, have always been Japanese monsters um, because there, there's an endless inventiveness there. They're so good at, at just inventing monsters almost for every for every eventuality, I suppose, is a way of putting it. Uh, I mean, you get these amazing things which, for example, come out at night, these various sprites and clean your bathroom or lick your bathroom clean. Um, and I, I, I became very, very attracted to the, the, the Japanese monster tradition, not least because it is very, very fluid, because um, particularly, in fact, in the 18th and 19th centuries, people are adding to it and subtracting to it and suddenly creating new things, this amazing um, burst of energy, but also because it's a very visually driven thing. And I'd say of all of the Japanese monsters, my favorite is probably the Kappa. Um, and I think there, is, there are a couple of pages on it in the book. And it's a, it's a strange, strange creature, um, which is fundamentally, I suppose, it's half human, half frog. I mean, it has a definite amphibious look about it. It lives in ponds, mostly, uh, sort of small lakes. Um, and by and large, it waits for people to... Uh, small children to uh, go in the water. It grabs them, drags them to the bottom, and and that and and feeds on them, of course. To the to the extent even that even today in Japan you will actually find signs telling people to beware of the kappas um, around around uh, sort of small pools of water. It also does all sorts of slightly less pleasant things. Um, there's a wonderful Hokusai illustration. Um, from the 19th century of a man, uh, for want of a better word, defecating into um, a river with a kappa um, waiting underneath. And in fact, the kappa's favorite pastime was when people were about to defecate into rivers to jump up and to suck their um, organs out through their anuses. Um, and, and this is, yes, exactly. I see a horror film in this. Um, and and it's just such a perverse pleasure isn't it it's such a perverse sort of delicacy and the way that they would wait Um, the other wonderful wonderful thing about the kappa of course is it has this uh, sort of indentation in the top of its head um, which it uh, has to keep water in so when it goes out of its its natural element when it goes out of water um, it has to keep the water uh, sort of balanced on top of its head all the time, otherwise, otherwise it dies, and therefore you get all these sort of wonderful um, Japanese hero tales of people, for example, uh, sort of um, uh, killing kappas by taking advantage, more than anything else, of their unfailing politeness. Because when you bow to a kappa, they're obliged to bow back, the water falls <laughs> out, and they die. <laughs> <laughs> that is classic. It's, and very it's, Japanese. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So Japanese, and and of course, all the best monsters say something about the the cultures that that, that spawn them. No, there's no question about that. But the but the Japanese monsters are the best. But you know, and, and, as, 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 I thought it was also very funny that that uh, the kappa has a weakness for cucumbers. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, the, the, the kappa is a classic example of a monster that whatever reason people like people warm to and therefore a whole it's like a micro industry kind of springs up around this one thing we find exactly the same thing with werewolves and exactly the same thing with with vampires um of kind of embellishing the myth of adding things and people love this and and the monsters that's an integral part the storytelling is such an integral part of all of these monsters i don't think we'd have anything comparable in the western world would we no, I mean, I mean, I mean. Obviously, we do have, you know, for example, uh, werewolf myths and things like that. But it's it's more sinister. It's more. Well, um, you have naiads, and uh, you know, they 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 would be kind of a comparable river spirit. Not as honourable, though. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they're not as not as honourable, and they're not as much fun. I mean, that, that's what's interesting. No, definitely that. not as much fun. The Japanese monsters are often terribly, terribly good fun. And this is something which has developed over hundreds and hundreds of years, that they, they've been sort of embellished and embellished and embellished. And I, I also think that the Japanese take monsters far more seriously, in a funny sort of way, that they they really enjoy the monster stories. Um, and somehow uh, a lot of them just aren't as sinister, even though they want to suck your organs out of them. 
And you didn't really get into uh, the gigantic gaiju, the, 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 the giant Japanese monsters, um, uh, like Godzilla and Anguirus and uh, those guys. But that's what my son is into right now. So, you know, it's not just their folklore monsters, even their new monsters that they're, you know, doing through cinema. Uh, well, and if you think about it, the, the whole wave of uh, J-horror films, the Japanese horror films like uh, The Grudge and um, uh, The Ring, uh, you know, that... that I don't think it's just because they're not westernized. You know, they they really are making some marvelous, fantastic uh, contributions to horror and, uh, and and monster lore. So I'm I'm in agreement with you. Yeah, and and, and I think um, I mean it's interesting. I I, I didn't um, I think I may have mentioned Godzilla in passing. Um, and I mean I love all this stuff, but um, the fact is, by and large, I shied away from the 20th century and I shied away from cinema. Um, more than anything, because I wanted to show that there was life in monsters before, um, and also that a lot of the things that um, we ha- have been so shocking, I suppose, in cinema in the past, uh, say, 50 years, in fact, were already in existence perhaps 500 years ago. That there's very little which anyone's come up with in a horror film that can really match something produced by, say, Lucas Cranach or Hieronymus Bosch. Um, working um, perhaps in the 15th or 16th centuries in the Netherlands. Um, but, well, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> I, I actually hadn't heard of the the, the rather creative attacks on, on the defecating people in the streams. I'm, I'm quite intrigued by that. Uh, it actually reminds me of uh, some stories that I'd heard about uh, the water horses, uh, for example, in, in Scotland and in the Highlands that were said to um, not only try and drown uh, people, uh, sort of luring them into the water, but often would sometimes would sometimes um, chase down young women and, and apparently rape them. Uh, can you, are there any other creative monster attacks on humans that, that, are, that are especially memorable to you? Um, yeah, well, I mean, the other day you're talking about Kelpies. Um, uh, the Kelpies. Kelpies in Scotland, which uh, and I one of my one of my great regrets. Sorry, um, I desperately wanted to include them. I just couldn't find an image that was that was exciting enough, um, which I was I was very angry about because they're they're fascinating things. Um, really, really quite unpleasant creatures uh, who very much like the Kappas, however, love dragging people to their deaths. There isn't there isn't any one monster in particular I, I mean one I suppose one category of monsters that is interesting are the sirens um, it's been in fact the past couple of weeks I've been doing a lot of interviews here in Spain and one question they always ask me is but why have you included sirens or uh, sirenas as they call them in the book because aren't these kind of lovely creatures um, and it's interesting because in Latin languages, they find it far more dif- difficult to distinguish between mermaids um, and sirens. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, we're very happy making a distinction. The mermaid is fundamentally a fairly positive thing who often helps lost sailors, etc. Um, uh, hence the little mermaid. Um, and sirens are very, very nasty creatures. <laughs> who um, originate in, well, uh, with uh, Odysseus, obviously, um, sort of semi-bird-like, perhaps semi-aquatic, swooping women who sing to lure sailors to their deaths on the rocks. Yeah, so, I was going to say, sorry. Ben's actually produced a, a, a cartoon short about sirens that I think does a nice job of highlighting their nastiness. <laughs> well, they, they are really, I, I, that, that I'd love to see. Um, I I, I love the sirens in the sense that they they sort of want to destroy mankind by producing this amazing, irresistible, beautiful music, um, which is is such a wonderful juxtaposition. You said kappas are still widely believed in today, and uh, we've talked on previous episodes about uh, folklore, cultural uh, beliefs, and house spirits, and that sort of thing, where people leave out offerings. Sometimes for religious reasons, sometimes just for superstitious reasons. But what, what kind of monsters that you've uh, researched here did, did you notice uh, are still widely accepted as probably being real? By I think um, that there is an ongoing um, uh, fascination, if not obsession, with vampires. Um, and it does seem that at least half the teen population of the world at the moment deeply wants vampires to be real, even if they're, they're not completely. That, I suppose, is really caught up with 
the 19th century uh, sort of romance horror, where suddenly all of these things become terribly glamorous, even sexy, I suppose, for want of a better word, vampires in particular, however, become really quite desirable things. They're the most curious sort of monster because they obviously have their origins fundamentally in tales of Vlad the Impaler, whose favourite pastime back in the Middle Ages was to impale his enemies on spikes and often in their hundreds, which has obviously combined with other uh, sort of blood-sucking monster myths and other um, metamorphosis myths to we end up in the 19th century with this rather sort of spell suave vampire um, and which which in recent years uh, throughout the 20th century has has just hung on and hung on and hung on and and I really do think that an awful lot of people probably do believe in vampires these days or as I, as I say deeply want to believe in vampires werewolves too have, have really been kept alive by um, by film uh, and of course glamorized by film an awful lot and again I'm sure there are thousands of people out there who would love to be able to turn into wolves if nothing else I suppose in a funny sort of way just as perhaps back in the 16th century the monsters that are easiest to believe in are, are sea monsters for the simple fact that um, it's very very difficult to prove that they're not there um, hence the enduring uh, obsession, when, in the British Isles at least, with Nessie, let's say, the Loch Ness Monster, it's a classic example. But in fact, most large lakes around the world have lake monsters. And, and these are things which are, are very, very widely believed in still. Uh, I wouldn't say the majority of the population, but people, again, really want to believe. For years and years, I desperately wanted to believe that there was something in, in Loch Ness. It is very, very deep. Uh, there could be anything down there. Who knows? Perhaps it is a dinosaur that survived somehow. Um, unlikely, um, but pe- pe- people want. <laughs> you reminded me of something else earlier. You talked about Hieronymus Bosch, and mm. uh, my only exposure to Bosch's work is through the Garden of Earthly Delights. Mm. Um, did he did he make any other horrific artwork? I mean, because that is such a great piece. Uh, with so much detail in it, it's very, very disturbing. It's 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 incredibly disturbing. Um, there's a there's a detail of it in the in the work in in, in the book. You have to remember that um, in the 15th, 16th centuries, there was vast but vast demand for this sort of image. Not necessarily as weird as um, the the works that Bosch produced, but certainly as barbaric in many cases. Um, that evil and evil people um, had to be represented um, in a suitably horrific way. Um, and of course, Bosch produced dozens and dozens and dozens of paintings, um, many of which uh, revive or include uh, similar demons. From the 12th century onwards, um, in the West, for example, uh, the images of the Last Judgment become um, a real staple of art. Uh, and the the last judgment, of course, is always split into into two parts. There's there the good, the elect, who are going to go to heaven, and they're escorted by angels. And there's the other half, uh, the damned, who are funneled off to hell. The mouth of hell is normally horrific. It's a huge gaping maw in most cases, um, and Bosch uh, certainly did plenty of that. Um, and then, of course, there are dozens and dozens of demons, normally already torturing people on their on their way down. So I think Bosch really was, um, while a pioneer and a bit of a visionary and perhaps a little bit mad as well, um, certainly out on a limb, was working within a kind of well-established tradition of deliberately horrific images. And we were talking about hybrid monsters earlier. Are there any monster feature combinations that we don't really see? I guess there would be lots of them. That's a, that's a brilliant question. Um... Uh, one one thing I've never seen, but I did look for, was a sort of human spider. Um, I mean, obviously we have Spider-Man, but that's a completely different thing. I, 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 there, there are certain combinations that you would love to see, certainly. And I've never found anything to... Uh, sort of humans and insects, you don't see combined a huge amount at all. There is one very, very strange image in the book. Um, which looks a little bit like maybe a cricket or a grasshopper 
with something like a cat's head. Uh, needless to say, it's Japanese again in the 17th century this time, um, which which is really really bizarre. But that I was a little bit disappointed about. I, I would hope to find more uh, sort of insect slash human combinations, um, which of course then you get. Um, I mean, you get the transformation in the fly, obviously. I mean, the capital story when maybe the film. But earlier, you don't get much of that. And I wonder whether that's anything to do with uh, microscopes. Hmm. Yeah, there was that issue of scale, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do think it's that, and it's interesting. So I suspect a lot of these, a lot of these medieval artists, for example, that had access to better better optics, they would have produced even more bizarre and horrific things. Do you, uh, do you happen to know anything about the, the Beast of Gavidan in France? Yeah, I, I, I cover it briefly in the book. Um, it's, it's a fascinating example of mass hysteria. Um, what's interesting about monsters, especially in these, um, these instances where there's a sighting or perhaps uh, normally it's a mauled cow or something like that, something being ripped to shreds in some unlikely way, people become absolutely hysterical. There was precisely what happened in, in France in the in the uh, well, mid to late 18th century. Um, there were all sorts of sightings of huge wolves or perhaps even larger, like a wolf-bear sort of creature. Um, definitely demonic in some way. People, while they fear these things, it's a completely natural fear, especially back in the, in the 18th century, they also really, really want them to be true. And you see this time and time again with these monster scares that people somehow love the frenzy. They love the hysteria. They they want it all to be real. I think this goes back to the idea of breaking through the natural world into the supernatural, um, looking for signs of there being something beyond the day-to-day. So really, yeah, the the, the, the whole instance in Jaladon was was mass hysteria. And of course, eventually the king's uh, soldiers were sent down because there was such hysteria. They caught something, or perhaps they didn't catch anything, depending on which account you believe. Um, and they then paraded what was probably quite a large wolf, but nothing else. <laughs> there was there was a very interesting film made on it. Um, oh, the brother of the hood of the wolf. Um, uh, let me see. It was it was it must have come out about three four years ago. Was that it? Yeah, the, it was French. Uh, it was a French film. Uh, had yeah. sort of a. Actually, it was interesting. Yeah, it had a martial arts kind of uh, take on it. Yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, beautiful film. And I guess in that version, oh, I don't want to spoil it for the audience because somebody might not have seen it. It is well, well worth the rental. Uh, yeah. Very cool, very cool film. It's a good. It's almost like a French buddy cop movie from the 1700s. <laughs> exactly. There we are. Beautifully put. They'll, they'll, they'll put that on the DVD case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's quite a fun movie. I, it's interesting that that particular story is. Um, because the historical record has, you know, an account of hundreds of deaths, um, lots and lots of people assume that it, that they're all true. And I, I unfortunately don't have enough uh, skill with French to go back and look at the primary sources myself. Uh, but you know, people have speculated all sorts of things. But uh, I like your sort of parsimonious take on it. I, I think that's probably uh, more likely to be the case. <laughs> we 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 do keep going back to the fundamental problem that we just don't find very many monster skeletons. Um, and and if monsters exist and if they procreate in the same way as us, then they would have families. Never and, and again, they would die. And then we would find something. And this, this gnaws away at me. I, I suppose I'm the same as everybody else. I want them to exist. But you know what? If they did exist, they would just be another physical creature, the same as you and I. Um, and therefore not even remotely interesting. And it's the fact that they can't exist, the fact that there is could be something out there which completely turns the laws of nature on its head, that that's what's appealing. It looked like you left out clowns, which is one of the most terrifying monsters. <laughs> Was that because you were scared of them? or <laughs> I'm scared of nothing. <laughs> but it is, it is interesting working on this book. But, I mean, I, uh, the, the, there's, there's no doubt that, uh, I suppose, my journey from 
uh, belief, albeit a rather watered down, but the sort of belief that I suppose many of us kind of keep because it's difficult to shake off to total and utter scepticism, to total and utter um, atheism, for want of a better word. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to say that in the States anymore. Um, in in two thirds of it, you can say it. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 uh, my journey has been one of gradually losing fear. Um, because obviously, monsters are a reflection of fear, they're a motivation for fear. I, 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 so, to the point where I've come to the conclusion that a genuine atheist, a genuine skeptic, is somebody who can walk through a forest, a darkened forest, in the middle of the night without batting an eyelid which I can just about do now, in a funny sort of way. Um, and the forests around here, I mean, there are a few wild boar, which, which potentially could give you problems, but hopefully not at night. But apart from that, there's nothing. There no well, problems. as monsters go, boars are boring, so there you go. It's very, very boring indeed, <laughs> unless, unless you could lop its head off and put it on a human's body, in which case it would be a bit more interesting. That's true. But, <laughs> um, but it's, as, it's as simple as that. And and in a sense, by looking at so many images of monsters, I've become not quite desensitized to them because I still find them fascinating. I still find them desperately appealing. But I suppose I've almost realized the kind of folly of the whole thing. And Chris, do you have any upcoming books or projects that you'd like to tell us about? Um, Well, I I mean, I'm currently working on the next... I have got another book coming out at exactly the same time, uh, in fact, it's already, um, which is a very conventional art history book. Um, although it did allow me to work with Philip Pullman, uh, who's one of my heroes, um, uh, and yeah. uh, shared some very interesting conversations with him on the subject of monsters. Um, he's an absolutely fascinating man. Sorry, I have to go off on a tangent. That's a book called What Makes a Masterpiece, which is um, about uh, very conventional forms of art history. But in fact, I'm sort of actually spiraling off in the opposite direction at the moment towards less conventional forms of art history. Monsters, in many respects, is a, it's a look at a different visual culture. It's the sort of visual culture that some of these works absolutely hang in very famous galleries around the world, but many of them don't. Um, and I'm very interested in alternate forms of visual culture. So in fact, my next book, which I'm just working on at the moment, is on um, uh, broader mythologies. And depictions of mythologies again around the world. Uh, needless to say, monsters feature fairly uh, heavily, um, but it's fascinating to to broaden it out a little bit. Well, it's uh, certainly an excellent book, and and again, I, I appreciate all the the uh, the research and work that you put into it. It's a it's a fine book, and I I just I I just sit here for for half an hour sipping some tea and just flipping through all the all the amazing images that you collected there. Well, well, thank you. That's 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 really kind. I mean, it, it's uh, I I love it. often when you finish the project, you know what it's like. You don't want to pick it up. You don't want to look at it. And this is a book which I keep going back to. I love flicking through it um, because it is a testament to human imagination. Every single work in this book has been dreamt up and executed by a human. This is what's so important. And that instead of of bemoaning the fact that the supernatural apparently at least doesn't exist, and that we aren't able to contact it, we should really be celebrating the fact that we've got it inside us, um, that we don't have to go any further, that we're able to dream up all of these things and, and depict them for ourselves. Well, thank you so much for spending some time talking with us today. Not at all. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Our show is produced with the help of Skeptic Magazine. Your hosts were myself, Blake Smith, Dr. Karen Stolzno, and Ben Radford. Today, we interviewed Christopher Dell about his book, Monsters, a bestiary of devils, demons, vampires, werewolves, and other magical creatures. A link to the books in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Hey, if you like Monster Talk, or if you hate it, why not come share your opinion on our message boards? You can also join our fan page on Facebook, and you can find our individual Twitter and Facebook info as well as our biographies. All that's at monstertalk.org and skeptic.com. Music for today's episode was by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Shh. I think I hear something coming down my chimney right now. Oh, it is. Okay, the lights are off, but I definitely see a tiny man in what looks to be a reddish suit. Ooh, with enormous boots. How did he fit down my chimney? I'm going to turn on the lights. 
James Randy. And now it's time for a visit from the Magic Cloud, and here he is. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, do, I mean, do whatever you want. Edit it to edit it to say, uh, I am, I am the devil himself. Worship me. Yeah. <laughs> Leave that in. <laughs>